When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a new edition of Freedom, Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. Your usual hosts, Stig Abel and Thea Lenarduzzi, are both away, probably exhausted after doing a lot of festivaling recently, and I do mean talking to writers in tents, not standing around in the mud watching Ed Sheeran. I'm Lucy Dallas, the arts editor, and I'm joined by none other than the TLS's Minister for Fun, Ros Dineen. Or would you prefer a different title, Ros? No, Minister for Fun is 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 fine. So it's official. It's, it's official. officially what you are. It was in the New York Times. Yeah, it's official. It must be true. <laughs> um, if you listen to this podcast and like it, do review us on iTunes. And if you don't, please maintain a tactful silence. Now we are a famously stylish lot, and this week's TLS has a focus on fashion. So we'll be talking about early modern bling in the form of pearls and what they've meant across hundreds of years, and, in a rather different direction, the meaning of Michael Jackson. Now, who knows what these names refer to? Elephant ear, pistol grip, maple leaf, butterfly, pimple back, three ridge pig toe and washboard. Not inventive school ground insults, but types of muscle used now in the cultivation of pearls. But pearls were first discovered in the wild, of course, and Catherine Hughes this week traces their rich and complex history for us. Catherine, many thanks for joining us. Um, Could you explain for us, please, why Molly A. Walsh, whose book you've reviewed, describes pearls as baroque? Well, it's a really strange idea, isn't it? Because one tends to think of pearls as being very kind of self-contained, well-behaved, sort of good girl of jewellery. So the notion that they're baroque, which suggests sort of excess and nobliness and kind of, you know, just too muchness, doesn't seem to fit. What uh, Molly Walsh does, she makes a very good case for saying, well, this is is the essence of pearls. Behind their very kind of well-behaved exterior, there is a kind of extraordinarily fascinating, complicated, bloody, contested kind of um, history. And that's what she tells, the story of how pearls 
in a sense, came to the West and then what happened um, as they kind of racket their way around the rest of the world, getting to all sorts of problems as they go. I mean, whoever knew that Pearls were so badly behaved? And that's what she means by Baroque, I think, the sense that they will not be contained. They will always kind of burst out of any attempt to uh, classify them or put them in a taxonomy. They will always somehow get the better of you. Mm-hmm. And as you say, in the, the, they symbolised all sorts of things, but, but, but very often, especially in the um, early modern period, they stood for purity and, and sort of goodness, as you say. Why, why do you think this is? And also, what is there that complicates that interpretation? I think there's something about just the way they look. They, they've got sort of milky luminescence. They look as sort of naive and innocent as a baby. But right from the start, there's this sense that they've got a dark undertow. So Pliny the Elder, who was still very, very important in the early modern period, he says that pearls are the result of sort of bivalve sex. They have intercourse. Which is actually, can I just say, it's not, that's not true, is it? It's not true. No. I'm just checking with the natural historians. It's not, That's not true. I mean, I'm not a natural historian, no, it's, but it's, not, it's definitely not, not true. Well, well, no. well Pliny, who, Pliny, who of course was a natural historian, nonetheless got the, he got a little bit overheated, and he decided that pearls were a result of two oysters falling in love with each other. <laughs> Mummy and Daddy Oyster being very, very happy together and deciding to make a little baby. And that was the pearl. So, you know, in a sense, they are already seen as something quite sexy and sexual. The other possibility, uh, I don't think Pliny said this, but the other feeling was that actually, you know, pearls are a, a waste product. I mean, they, they formed famously by a, a little bit of grit gets into the pearl and then I think calcium carbonate is spun around it. And that's how you get a pearl. But in any other kind of organism, that, that would be a waste product. Product. That would be mm. something that you either vomited or excreted in some other way. Mm, it would be a bit of dirt yeah. that you have to get rid of. So that's so fascinating. So pearls, for all their kind of milky purity, are also sexy and dirty. <laughs> but why do you think in the early modern period they were... Do you think that was just because of the way they looked? Or it was... I wonder if it was something to do with them being self-contained or... They're, they're somehow sort of... They're more of a goody-goody thing. And also in the Bible, aren't they also used in the Bible for purity, I think? Walsh puts her finger on something quite interesting a little bit later on where Vermeer paints so many of his girls with pearls. Mm. And we tend to kind of carelessly assume that the pearls are there to suggest that the girls are very, or the young women are, contained within the domestic sphere, that they're living a very sort of innocent and secluded life. Mm. What Walsh suggests is actually any knowing viewer would have looked at a Vermeer painting and known that the pearls that were hanging around their neck or, or indeed hanging as, a, as an earring were actually much more complicated than that, that those pearls had had a very kind of complicated journey. They'd probably come from the Caribbean where they'd had a kind of quite a rackety kind of beginning. And that also, interestingly, women in the early modern, modern period in... Uh, the Netherlands often traded in pearls. It was it was something that you could do from the comfort of your own home. You could, as it were, be a little sort of lady entrepreneur, and it was kind of respectable. Yeah, yeah. So you know that immediately kind of opens up this suggestion of pearls managing to both sort of stand as a kind of warranty of a woman's purity, mm. but also as a symbol of her economic agency in the world, mm-hmm. which is unusual, isn't it? Does uh, Walsh write? Uh, she writes as well about the the slave trade. And the the collection of pearls right from the start and quite how brutal that was. Yeah, I mean, that's the extraordinary thing. Again, these pearls who look as though butter wouldn't melt in their mouth are actually uh, implicated in the most brutal stages of 
of imperialism and very early capitalism. It's, in a sense, it's the originary story of imperial exploitation because what happens, Columbus goes out, finds the, the West Indies and, and then later the northeast coast of Venezuela and finds that there's an indigenous pearl industry, the local Indians, as he calls them, are, are you know using are, are diving for pearls. What he wants to do is set up something much more industrial in scale. So the Indians are enslaved and made to dive for pearls, and um, in barbaric situation because whereas they were diving only when they needed to find pearls, now they're diving constantly. It's mm. like they're constantly going down to the depths, and of course that plays havoc with their with their bodies. So they often come up and they're bleeding from the mouth, mm. and the life of a pearl diver is very very short and and not very pleasant. And I think did you say in your piece as well that it actually it it affects their bodies sort of long term I mean not not that they had very long lives as you say but it actually changed the shape of their bodies well, and the that, way they looked that's what has this absolutely fascinating point that because they're doing so much diving it, it changes the colour of their hair so it gets a particular kind of quality so dark hair becomes lighter and has a sort of burnished kind of quality also that the shape of their musculature slightly changes because they're constantly negotiating these different pressures underwater mm. so you get you know we, we hear a lot in post-colonial theory about the the colonial body that that comes into being in various places and sites you know in India particularly in the 18th and 19th century but but here's the first colonial body as it were a body that is changed because of this like, kind of industrial and economic desire to make and produce pearls yeah and so it is actually shaped by the economy Really? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what Walsh is so good at, is, is showing that this desire for this apparently humble, apparently, you know, very kind of, oh, no, don't mind me, kind of pearl, you know, that kind of very kind of, I haven't done anything wrong, um, actually has this amazing kind of effect, not just on the economic circulation around, of, of the pearl around the world, but of, of bodies uh, around the world. Mm. So, for instance, when uh, Indians are no longer in, in great supply, because, frankly, they've all died they start um the spaniards start importing people from west africa in order to to, to start dive. diving for yeah. pearls and they become very they become very kind of keen on the fact that there are certain bits of africa that produce the kind of body that they think would be good for for pearl diving so angola not good they they're just the wrong sort of body right other bits of the west coast good good body that will dive and will so it's just absolutely yeah. extraordinary the sense of not just the natural world being absolutely shaped mm. But actually, you know, human humankind being shipped around, um, and I was interested as well that you're saying that is completely intimately bound up with colonialism. But it also the pearl is not; it's not as neat as that because it, it manages to escape and evade the economic system. Can you tell us about how that works as well? well Walsh is Walsh is very good on this. Um, obviously, their royal majesties Isabella and Ferdinand in Spain would like a, would like to run a very tight ship. They would like to know that every pearl that comes to light is docketed and taxed. Mm. That's what they want. It's it's a way of getting money into uh, in into Spain. But there's something about pearls, they're small and they're kind of insignificant looking, that they can, as it were, sort of escape the supply chain. So Walsh is very good on the way in which you know a diver coming up from the depths might just slip an extra pearl into his mouth mm. and therefore evade you know, the, 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 the gaze of the imperial accountants, as it were. And then the, that's, that slave might well pass it on to a woman who might pass it on to a priest who might slip it up his sleeve and you just get this sense of pearls circulating in a kind of um, well a kind of grey economy 
as it yeah. were, that they, they kind of go on their own adventures, much, of course, to the constant dismay of their imperial majesties back in Spain, who are just feeling mm. that these pearls are getting up to no good, but they can't quite see where they've gone. Mm. And it was the Spanish... It's the Spanish royal family they're going to because um, we were talking about a pearl earlier, La Peregrina. I don't know if you've heard about her. Peregrina, yeah. Her, I'm saying her. There you go, straight away. <laughs> because it seems to be, this is all a bit Wikipedia, I'm afraid, but it's just a wonderful story. And I thought it was like an example of what you, how you say they can move around. And Because it went into the Spanish royal family. It was very, very big, apparently, and very um, noticeable. And then went to Mary I, Bloody Mary, who wore it for a bit. And then Philip got it back, I think, after she died and then stayed in the Spanish royal family for ages. And then one of the Bonapartes was made king of Spain mm-hmm. for a bit. Again, I'm very hazy yeah. on this. He, and he kind of snaffled it when he went off. And then it went up for auction and eventually ended up being bought by... Um, Richard Burton. Yes, for Elizabeth Taylor, Elizabeth Taylor in their oh. first marriage. And there's these wonderful pictures of Elizabeth Taylor looking... Every bit as she good got, as... She got Cartier to reset it right. as Mary had had it. Oh, really? But then she lost it. She lost it. Apparently she used to lose it quite a lot and it would fall off the, the hanging because it was quite heavy. And one time she lost it. Apparently she's written a book about her jewels, which I haven't read. I'm quite tempted to. <laughs> and she's looking for it. And she didn't tell Richard Burton because he'd be... He'd be pretty cross, cross, I think. Yes, he would yeah. be pretty... So she was looking down the sofa cushions and, and panicking. And she saw her puppy chewing on something <laughs> and it turns out the puppy had La Peregrina in oh his mouth gosh. but unharmed so she quickly yanked it out stuck it back on yeah. it was all it was all fine again that was a detour but it seemed <laughs> to be fascinating it seemed to be appropriate to yeah. the kind of what you say the way that they can slip in and out of of the most extraordinary sort of escapades well also I think Walsh makes the point that unlike diamonds rubies most gems they don't need a great deal of work I mean they come out of nature complete they mm. don't need to then be faceted and polished i mean a little little polish with a rag mm. and that's what kind of makes them slightly free agents they don't then go into the jewelry shop straight away they have a value yeah independently immediately yeah yeah and and she's absolutely fascinating how on how in certain caribbean economies pearls started to replace money so you could actually get your groceries with pearls you could go into the tavern and have a quick, you know, half pint or whatever they did, and and pass over a pearl for it. So it becomes a kind of alternative economy. Yeah. But again, uh, the locals resist any attempt to kind of fix the value. They want the pearl to be kind of free floating, so that each exchange gives it a, a new kind of value. So again, it's this very, it's kind of non-compliant kind of object that just won't do what it's told yeah yeah um i think we've got just got time for one more i wanted to ask you um you talk in the piece a little bit about the difference and the sort of different characters that you might find behind a pearl that you might find in scotland you say or or one that might be found um in you know near panama or something there's something about that 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 they're the, the, the characters that are ascribed to them. Yeah, Walsh is very good on this idea that the, the origin of the pearl becomes absolutely knitted into its sort of sense of history and therefore its value. So, for instance, pearls that come from, later on come from the East, Southern India in particular, are, are said to be exotic. And so, therefore, they are supposed to have, you know, something exotic or special about them. Scottish pearls, which are apparently come from mussels and are freshwater mm-hmm. riverbed, apparently because they are 
harvested by sturdy peasants, not enslaved workers, paddling around. Yeah. Uh, they have a sort of tang of kind of highland independence. You know, so they're so, kind of tough. Yeah, they're, they're kind of a pearl <laughs> that will talk back and take no nonsense. You know, take no nonsense <laughs> and, and she's very good on how these stories get, as it were, wrapped, wrapped around these... Uh, these pearls. I love that idea. You could have a string of pearls, couldn't you? And you could have different ones sitting next to each other. A sort of mysterious one from the east and a tough... It's, you can't anymore because it's illegal to buy, possess a Scottish pearl. You can't dig for them, you can't find them, you can't even buy them. Unless you have a licence. Okay, well so, there we go. That's yes. it. That's something that's good nice for us idea, all to know. <laughs> so in case anyone was thinking of it, don't deal in Scottish pearls, it's illegal. Catherine, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you so much. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Michael Jackson was one of the most iconic musical entertainers the world has ever seen. When he died in June 2009, a public memorial service was held in LA, which was watched by more than a billion people worldwide. His album Thriller is the best-selling album of all time, having sold over 66 million copies. He's remembered for his songwriting, his moonwalking, his fashion, his philanthropy, but also for the controversies and his utter strangeness. In this week's TLS, the author Sam Byers writes of a Michael Jackson who battled the clinical gaze, but who rendered freakishness not only acceptable, but defiant. Sam turns that accusation of strangeness back on the viewer. He writes of a Jackson who was a consciously self-authored creation. 
He knew what he needed to be. Strange, then, that we spend so much of our time insisting that he be something else, either an earlier incarnation we imagine as the original, or a tragic shadow Michael, a person he never was at all. The accepted Jackson narrative is that we love him despite what he became. What he was was wonderful. What he turned into was sad. When I spoke to Sam, I asked him what we're missing about Michael Jackson when we say that. I suppose what I feel that we're missing is a sense, firstly, that he worked hard on himself in order to create the performer and the entity he wanted to be. I feel that the sort of tragic narrative, while it's understandable, also risks erasing his achievements in music and performance. And it frames his life, I think, as a series of events that happened to him rather than a series of decisions he made about the person he wanted to be. The other thing I think is slightly strange is it's very difficult to pinpoint the exact turning point when we went from being captivated by how unusual he was to being concerned about how much more unusual he was becoming to really diagnosing him as beyond the point of unusualness we were willing to tolerate. That's what I find concerning about the way we talk about him, but also kind of compelling about his career in that I think it leaves space now that the years have passed to kind of reframe our understanding of him. It's clear from the piece that you wrote for us that you responded very strongly to Michael Jackson as a child. Do you recall the first time you ever saw him? I don't, actually. I recall the first few times I heard him on terrible sort of tape-to-tape copies that I played through my little one-speaker tape player that I had in my bedroom. And I think it speaks volumes to his artistry that even in that poor and reduced quality, he spoke so directly to me as a child. Listening to him now on sort of good headphones in high-res music files, I realised that I was missing a huge amount of what made those albums spectacular, actually, and yet they were still compelling. I think probably the first things I would have seen of him would have been the bad video, which I remember really vividly being a kind of much-talked-about phenomenon when it arrived, both because of its length, its ambition, the way it sort of showed this other side to Michael Jackson, this actorly persona that he he took on and also I remember really strongly the making of Thriller Video where you see him putting together the Thriller Video rehearsing and also that video had the Billie Jean performance on at the end of it as well which I think remains everyone's kind of archetypal memory of Michael Jackson. You talk as well in the piece personally about not being very well as a child what what role did Michael Jackson perform in that in that narrative? I mean, this this isn't something I could enunciate at the time when I was a child, but on reflection, I think he modelled uh, a version of masculinity and boyishness and artistry and being in the world that was unlike anything else I had encountered. So as a very sort of awkward boy who had to spend a lot of time at home, um, who was very uncomfortable with my body because of being ill and kind of being uncomfortable all the time. Um, He seemed to model a way of being that 
um, didn't encourage the kind of shrugging off of uh, freakishness, as you might call it, or an attempt to kind of conceal the parts of yourself that weren't like other people, and more a way of embracing a kind of much more radical freakishness. That struck me very profoundly at the time, although I don't think I could really quite put into words why that was. I think the other thing that really still strikes me about him now um, and other performers uh, and sometimes athletes is that he seemed to have an ability to be in his own body and a mastery over his own body that I wasn't able to understand or comprehend or ever imagine myself having over my own body. So I think thought of like that, his dancing and his performance um, becomes something more than um, routine or a sort of carefully rehearsed set of technical exercises. Um, it, it becomes a kind of, and the phrase I would use is, is a way of being. He is in con complete control of his physicality. And again, I think it's interesting to think about the moment that as a culture we shift from regarding him as being as having total mastery over his physical form to uh, beginning to suggest that his physical form or his relationship with his physical form has somehow got away from him and become monstrous without considering the ways in which all of the things we find monstrous about him are the exact same things we found compelling and moving and beautiful about him you know a very short time previously in the piece you look at, at another mj at margot jefferson and her book on michael jackson which has recently been reissued by granta books jefferson you say writes little about the michael jackson that she loved and and admired and a lot about the two versions of michael jackson one as a child molester and one as being asexual and how he passed voluntarily into this sort of solitary freakdom and he is stripped you say of his art by her can you talk a little bit more about that stripping in general in the wider culture I think it's what happens to an artist when we decide to no longer speak about their artistic output and to speak about them either as what we think of as a person even though we can never really know them or merely as a kind of cultural signifier or icon. So I think part of the problem with the book, or part of the problem to me, is that it allows only a page or two to really describe what Michael Jackson achieved as a songwriter, as a musician, as a performer, and devotes rather more space to his face, his physicality, the rumours that surrounded him, his trial, um, and while I understand that those narratives are compelling, I think, uh, I think there's, there's something irresponsible about not allowing him, not recognising the way that he wanted to express himself when we're expressing ourselves about him, if that makes sense. Um, I, I also think that it then presents an incomplete narrative. And I think removes an awful lot of his agency and his ability to continue to converse with us, if you like, after his death. Um, 
and I suppose one of one of the things that started to interest me as I was writing about Michael Jackson, reading other things about Michael Jackson, reading this book about Michael Jackson, is could we challenge ourselves to write about Michael Jackson and discuss him without mentioning his face? Um, and I feel that there were precious few examples of criticism that had been able to do that, which I think raises the question of what it is about his face, what it is about his physical appearance we're so unwilling to tolerate and what answers we want about his physical appearance, even though this is a conversation we've been having for so long. And so I felt the book stood in stark contrast to something like the two Spike Lee documentaries about Off the Wall and Bad, um, which do an absolutely extraordinary job of taking those albums track by track and just talking about Jackson's artistry. Do you think that in general, in our culture, we, we're talking too much about the artist and the creator and not enough about the output? I mean, I think two things have happened and I feel differently about each of them. I, I think, firstly, what's happened is we're much more attuned to people's indiscretions and crimes and I think, for the most part, that's a good thing. I think where people have been able to conceal their abuse of power behind celebrity or artistry or um, media manipulation, I think it's all to the good that um, a new emphasis on who that person might be as a person, as a figure of power, um, is now available to us and that we're able to have those conversations and hold people to an account in a way that we haven't been before. But I think some, in some ways related to that, but also unrelated to that, um, all artists now have far more ways of communicating with the people who consume their art through social media, through other media forms. Artists are able to take control of that narrative to a certain extent but that's led to an expectation, I think, that artists provide us as fans with more than just their art um, and an expectation that people show as much of themselves as possible in order to supplement the ways that they're already expressing themselves through their music or literature or whatever. And that, I think, in turn has led to um, difficulties engaging with people's artistic output purely as artistic output which from the point of view of criticism particularly literary criticism I think is problematic um, and I think it can lead us into a situation where we have an over-reliance um, one on what has what an artist has said about their own work which is not always the the, the best kind of yardstick by which to measure a piece of work um, and two the other supplementary things we know about that persona um, outside of their their work, um, and I think we have to bear in mind that you know persona is the right word. Um, all kind of media communication is is still a structured, preconceived process, and it I don't think it offers us as much of a window into the personality of a writer as we might think it does. Um, interestingly, you know, Michael Jackson says in, in the sort of manifesto he wrote for himself, which I quote in the piece, um, 
I will do no interviews, I will be magic. And I think magic is such an interesting word to describe someone who didn't want to talk about himself in public. And I personally feel that much of the sort of um, intrigue and at times kind of vitriol that was directed towards Jackson was uh, a direct outcome of his decision to try and maintain a kind of uh, sense of privacy about himself, sense of mystery, a sense of, as he would have it, magic. And I've, it seems to me that the culture didn't want to allow Jackson that control over himself. And that's interesting, I think, in light of other artists who've tried to take that control over their own personality. Elena Ferranti springs immediately to mind. It seems to me that there's a pattern of response directed at artists who try and both be successful as artists and communicate as artists and retain the part of themselves that is not their artistic self, that is their their own self, the part of themselves that they perhaps reserve for family or whatever. Um, the culture reacts quite violently to that, I think. So, you know, Elena Franti was quite kind of violently unmasked by an Italian journalist. Um, and as I talk about in the piece, the lengths culturally that we as a society went to to breach Michael Jackson's um, carapace of privacy, what privacy he had left, I think are uncomfortable but also enlightening in that they tell us something about what we demand of artists and celebrities and, and what we expect people to give of themselves when they've already arguably given us a great deal. That was Sam Byers talking to me earlier. Yeah, and it's clear from um, the way he talks about him that he has a, a very, he feels a, a kind of special, quite a personal relationship with him, identifies with him quite a lot. Yeah, and that's what's lovely about, about the piece is that mm. is that element of it. There is a kind of complicating factor because the nature of the allegations against Michael Jackson, even though he was acquitted in that yeah. big trial, yeah. were such that it's very difficult for them not to colour a reputation. Yes, yeah, very much so. And, and um, I mean, he does talk about his strangeness, but, yeah, that adds a whole, a whole other dimension to it. That is true. Yeah, and um, it's, it's still going on. In December, a judge dismissed, I think, the last lawsuit brought against Jackson. Really? But they, it, by, they were still happening? Yeah, it was a, a choreographer claimed that Michael Jackson molested him. And interestingly, the judge didn't rule on the credibility of the of the mm-hmm. claim, but he was ruling on whether the estate could be liable or not, and that's why he dismissed it. Right. So it's okay. still eight years later. Yeah, it's still long. it's still rolling on. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Many thanks to Catherine Hughes and to Sam Byers. This week in the paper, we look at how we as a society deal with death, the effect the fashion industry has on the environment. Spoiler alert: is not good and the bifurcated cycling costumes designed and made by female cyclists in the 1890s. There is also the question, much debated at the moment, of whether social media is good for us. Answers on a postcard, please. And do subscribe to the TLS. If you Google TLS subscriptions, you'll find us. Next week in the paper will be Grenfell Tower and Urban Planning, Women and the Mafia, and also Owls, Gardens and Shepherds. We may or may not be discussing all of these. 
But until then, from Roz and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.